Wow. Hey, if, if I were to go into your home or into your office, would I find some things that are kind of on display? Things that you're, you're wanting everybody to see? If you did that at our house, you're, you're going to find all kinds of things. You're going to find memories of some of the great trips we've taken uh, in uh, our 30-plus years together. Uh, you're going to find some artifacts that we've kind of inherited from our families. Uh, you're going to find some new things that, that we've acquired. You can find some things that are special to us. Early in our marriage, we fell in love with the painting of Thomas Kincaid, and, and so there are several representatives of Thomas Kincaid around our house. When you come in our front door, there's a, a, one of a beautiful painting of a white church, and it's important because our lives were formed and forged so much by the church. That helps us remember. When you walk in the front door, if you look just to your left, you'll see a beautiful painting by Thomas Kincaid that is the, uh, the head of Jesus. And it just reminds us that Jesus is to be the center, the, the foundation uh, of our home. But to, to make it personalized, my wife does a, a great job. And my favorite things that we have on display are pictures of our family through the years. And I especially love the holiday seasons because Kimberly, she, she pulls out, I don't know how she does it, she pulls out pictures from different seasons of our life. So, so like right now, we've got all the boys and, and Anaya in pumpkin patches, and, and we've got them in their Halloween costumes, and it's spread all around the house. In just a few weeks, we'll transition, and, and we'll have all the Christmas pictures out. And, and by the way, I, I've officially already transitioned. I'm listening to Christmas music. I invite you to do the same, and don't hate me for doing it. But I love those pictures that are in our house. If you come to my office, same kind of thing. Like if you walk in my office right now, the first thing you see just to your left is a spear I got this year in Tanzania. And it just reminds me of that wonderful trip and those children that I met and how God stirred my heart for Compassion International, just like he stirred so many of your hearts to be a part of uh, Compassion and the ministry to children. So I have all kind of artifacts like that too. But my favorite thing in my office are pictures. So I, I sit at my desk and I, everywhere I turn, I can see a picture of Kimberly. And it just makes me smile every time I do. I, I see a picture of my bride. And I, I've got this picture that I can look up and see of me and the new Purvis princess. And that's early after Anaya was adopted into our family. And, and I love just looking at her. And then I've got a bunch of pictures of the boys. That's the OG Purvis pack, the, the first four there. The guys when they were a little younger. And man, it, it just incredible encourages me. Those are things that I find worthy of display. But if you go back to our home, there's something else that you'll find. Uh, right now, it's, it's on our piano, um, just above that musical instrument that's meaningful to, to us and our family. You'll find this stained glass window, and it, it has real meaning to us because it came from the first church I served as, as a senior pastor, First Baptist Church of Conyers. And, and I went there, and this church was kind of landlocked on just 2.2 acres, and God began to bless, and we began to grow, and we recognized we needed to relocate, so we re relocated to 52 acres. And man, it, it was just amazing. God was blessing in a mighty way, but we had to sell that old building. And we sold the old buildings to the county, and the county said they, they couldn't have buildings that had stained glass with religious symbols in them. And so in this very old building that at the time was over 100 years old, they, they took out the stained glass windows, and that church, they, they gave one of those windows to our family. And it was so meaningful. And it's so special to us. And, and we find that, and, 
And it takes us back to that time in our life, and we find that worthy of display. Here's what I want you to get today. According to Scripture, you, your lives, are supposed to be worthy of display for the glory of God. Now, you guys look pretty good. Some of you put on your Sunday best. My, my friends down here, Sandra and Marcy, I mean, they're like twins today. I mean, they got on twin dresses. They're sisters. They've got on their Sunday best. You all look marvelous. But let me just tell you, what I, I want you to think about is, is my life worthy of display? Now, last week we veered away from the Sermon on the Mount, and we, we talked about God's covenant with one man, a man named Abram. You remember that? Let me just remind you where it happened in Scripture. Genesis chapter 12, it says, The Lord has said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And we're just challenged by that spiritual truth that the faith walk is always a walk to a place that we're going to have to trust God shows us. He doesn't always lay it out front. He doesn't always say this is exactly how it's going to look. That's why it's called faith But then he says this, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And and when the, the Bible does this, it then begins to paint a picture of God's covenant love all throughout the Old Testament with his people. And so we, last week, we walked through Scripture, and we saw God's covenant on display through personal relationships again and again. We saw God's covenant love on display through promises again and again. We saw God's covenant love on display through His divine purpose again and again and again. And we saw God's covenant love on display through the hand of His promise, His providence again and again. And then we saw God's covenant love on display and ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the pathway to covenant love for you and for me. You, You can't read the Scriptures without seeing God's covenant love. In fact, I'm reading a plan in my Bible reading called the McShane plan. In the last two mornings, part of what I've read is Hosea. If you hadn't read Hosea, go check it out. It'll shock you because it begins this way. Hosea chapter 1 verse 2, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, the land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now, you thought the Lord put some hard things in your path. If I'm not mistaken, I don't know another person that can say, the Lord told me to go marry a prostitute. I mean, some of your translations say, we didn't think we would ever say this in church. Go marry a whore. Or a lady of whoredom is what it says in some translations. Wow. Why would God say that? Well, he tells us in the same verse. Because you people... The one I covenanted with, the one that I said, your descendants will never go away. The one, we didn't get into this last week, but the one that says, at the end of time, there will be 144,000 Jews who will be witnesses to the faith of Jesus Christ. Those people, you've been so unfaithful to me. And I want to demonstrate, I want to illustrate what that unfaithfulness looks like. And then I want to come back and show you 
Again, that picture of covenant love. So if you read the 14 chapters of Hosea, what you're going to find is uh, Hosea marries this woman. Her name's Gomer. I mean, strike two. <laughs> he marries this unfaithful woman, and guess what? She continues to be unfaithful. No shocker. At one point, he even has to go buy her out of prostitution. He has to buy on his. He has to buy back his own wife. Why? Because God wants us to see this picture of covenant love. Though the people of God are repeatedly unfaithful, God is faithful to his word. And so God's word is showing us this continual picture of God's covenant faithfulness to a people who who rarely reciprocate his love. Now let me just ask you, do you have any relationship in your life where you feel like I give and I give and I give and it's not reciprocated? You probably do. Well, welcome to creation. Because that's how our Creator has felt about us. And so here in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message ever preached, Jesus decides to bring that up. And He chooses to illustrate His covenant love through the picture of marriage. Now think about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus began by reminding us, we call it the Beatitudes, of the life-giving nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he continues by giving us kind of a a wherever-we-are mission statement. You know that? If you're a Christ follower, it's not just about what happens in these walls or walls like these on a Sunday. You have a wherever-I-am mission statement. You know what your mission statement is? It's to be salt and it's to be light. Salt adds seasoning wherever you are. Light shines wherever you are. Then Jesus tells us kind of his mission statement. He tells us part of his why, why he's there. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. He's the ultimate fulfillment of everything good, which tells me if I want what's good, I'm ultimately going to find that fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In doing that, what does Jesus do? He holds up God's word. He reminds us that There's value in the Word of God. And then he begins to show us his way. And the Jesus way is different, and the Jesus way is better. In fact, we call the Jesus way in this passage of the Sermon on the Mount the antithesis, because he's saying it's not what you think. It's antithetical to what you think. It's different. So he begins by saying stuff like this. Um, Hey, you've heard that it's wrong to murder. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, don't be angry. Yeah, because he's wanting us to understand that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And so when we talked about that, we we mentioned some things that are kind of hard to hear. Like, hey, do you know what is in common with every argument, every fight, every quarrel you've ever been in? You know who's always been there? You. (laughs) You're a part of it. And and so James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, you wonder why you have fights and quarrels? It's the passions that rage in you. And so Jesus is just drawing us back. And and then he gives us another antithesis. He says, you've heard it's wrong to commit adultery. Well, it is. But I'm telling you, don't have a lustful thought. You're like, what? And Jesus is just reminding us that our choices are pathways, and those pathways always lead to a destination. You're not going to make choices in your life without there being constant consequences. And and that destination 
If it, if it lasts a lifetime, those ungodly choices, they can lead you to an eternity, eternity separated from God. And now, Jesus is giving us yet another antithesis, a different way of looking. And he's, he does that in the context of divorce and of the words that we say every day. So let's look at the Word of God. Hear me. These are the words of Jesus. Matthew 5, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath. But fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell to you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's footstool, or, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So, when Jesus... In his one shot, this great sermon, when he chooses to illustrate covenant love, he does so in a way that we can see what it looks like in marriage, and he does so in a way that we can see what it looks like in every relationship in our lives. Now, here's what I know. This is going to be hard for some of you. I know that just because of the, the, the prevalence of divorce in our society. So some of you have walked through the pain of divorce. And so you're, you're literally sitting there thinking, Dear Jesus, why did I not read this passage and know where this was headed so that I could have skipped today? I mean, you, you just wish there was an easy way out. Others of you, it's going to be hard just because you're still in the hurt of it. Or, or maybe... You're in a marriage that's not a divorce, but it's just not what it should be. So I want to pause, time out, one more time and pray. And here's what I've been praying since early this morning for you. That if you need conviction in this area, that God would convict. If you need comfort in this area, that God would comfort. And if you need clarity in this area, that God would give clarity. And that when we come to an end, everyone here, whether I'm married or whether I'm a single adult, whether I'm a child or a teenager, that I will begin to see that God wants me to live my life in a way that is worthy of the display of His glory to this world. So let's pray. Hey, and let's do something a little different, okay? You don't always have to close your eyes. So I'm just going to look around as we pray together, okay? So Father, in the name of Jesus, I just thank you for friends that I see all across this room. Most of the folks sitting here We'll never know what a privilege it is for me just to be a shepherd and to be entrusted by you as I was reminded again this morning in Scripture to just share what you've implanted in me. So here's my prayer, Lord. Let my words be your words and let my thoughts be your thoughts today because they don't need to hear from me. They need to hear from you. And, oh, God, would you, um, would you give us those things we need that we haven't we haven't received? And would you teach us those things that we've not 
learned, but we desperately need. And, and would you make us different where we need to be shaped or molded more into your image? And so, Lord, let my words and my thoughts and every bit of it be pleasing to you, my Redeemer. And God, I pray that you would redeem people, marriages, and relationships today. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, you know what? Marriage is easy to talk about. Uh, For the last several months, uh, actually, Kimberly and I, we've had three opportunities to gather with pastors and wife and just encourage them as it relates to marriage and ministry. We've got a fourth opportunity this week. And so it, it's fun. We tell some jokes and, and, and we talk about some of our challenges. And it, it can be great to talk about. And I love performing a wedding ceremony. I've had an opportunity to do that twice in the last 10 days. That's a special time for me. Um, man, last, last Sunday afternoon, I had a, a wedding ceremony and and I did what I did most every time I stand with a, a bride and groom. I cried <laughs> because it's such a special time. I mean, I don't take notes into the room because I've gotten to know the folks that I'm standing with. And it's personalized just from my heart. And we accomplish the things we need to accomplish. But that's such a sweet time. It's easy to talk about marriage. But I can just tell you, after 30 years, sometimes it can be hard to be married takes work because it it involves broken people like me that say, all right, let's do this. And sometimes you wake up and have good days and and sometimes you you wake up and you have bad days. Do you know what's equally hard? It's to talk about divorce. For some of the reasons I've already mentioned, this is a hard topic. It's not... It's not uncharacteristic of Jesus, though. You understand that, right? A lot of what Jesus talked about was hard to hear. I mean, Jesus, his talking on giving, which he talked about more more than anything else, it's hard to hear. And all my life, I've watched people leave churches because we talk about giving like Jesus talked about giving. That's hard to hear. Jesus said crazy stuff like this. Unless you're willing to leave your mom and your dad and your brother and sister and follow me, I don't think you're ready. So what Jesus said here is not the only hard thing he said, but it's hard to hear because so many of us have been hurt by this. Because divorce is hard. It affects so many people. Its causes and effects hurt everybody involved. And so as a preacher, just know it would be easier for me just to kind of look through the scriptures and say, man, oh, that's a tough one. Let's skip over that one. I can't do that. I can't do that because we believe all of Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for our lives. And and so even on a topic like this, if you feel like, I don't know if this is going to apply to me, Scripture says of itself that it will because it says all Scripture is applicable to us. I, I, I can't put this aside for that reason. I can't put this aside because I have to be true to God's Word. I, I can't put this aside because I'm not called to help you feel better. Because our our eternity is not based on my feelings. And that's difficult for me because I'm a pretty sensitive person. If you hang out here much, you you notice I cry. And if you send me an ugly email or 
say something behind my back, it hurts my feelings. I'm probably too sensitive is what Mama Susan tells me sometimes. But I'm not guided by your feelings. I read this morning, even in Proverbs, Proverbs 29, the proverb for today, the 29th day, Proverbs 29, 25 says, fear of man will be will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So i got to stand here with an audience of one and saying, hey, Jesus said some tough stuff. So how does this apply to our life? Because Jesus was very clear. Now, just to add clarity to what Jesus said here, I want you to hear what Jesus said in Matthew 19. This is a parallel passage outside of the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about this subject. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him, that's Jesus, to test him. That's what they're always wanting to do, trying to trick Jesus. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And then Jesus says, haven't you read? He replied. Now, Scripture is funny, and sometimes you don't get the humor because you don't hear what's going on. Who's he talking to? The religious people. You know what these religious people have done? They've read the Bible. You know what the Bible was? It's our Old Testament. You know what they had done, the people he was talking to? They had not just read the Bible. They had memorized the first five books, the Torah. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Most of us have a hard time just reading it. They've memorized it. They had memorized much of the psalm because when they would come to worship, they would sing what we call the psalms. I can hardly read through Psalms 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. They've memorized this. And Jesus, the Son of God, says, have you even read this stuff? That's funny. And then he says that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. What's he talking about? He says... Quoting Genesis 2, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Or as I said it twice in the last 10 days, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, right? Jesus quoting the second chapter of the Bible. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus replied, Moses permitted. You see what he did there? He changed their word, not command. But Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus is reiterating what he said. What is he really trying to communicate? Let me see if I can sum this up. And then we're going to pray and respond and go home. First, I, I want to remind you that the fulfillment of God's covenant love is found in Jesus Christ. That's the message of the Bible. God loves you. Not just because you're so lovable. He loves you in spite of you. He, he loves you even in the midst of your sinfulness. And he demonstrates that love through the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. And your relationship with him ensures a love relationship with God. But Jesus is saying more. Jesus is teaching that we display the covenant of Jesus through marriage and the other commitments we make in life. 
So just like Jesus displayed the covenant love of God on the cross, we display the covenant love of God through marriage and our relationships with other people. So let's talk about marriage. What was Jesus saying? He was confronting error. He was supporting women. And he was protecting the sanctity of marriage. Do you hear what I said? He was confronting error. He was supporting women. And he was protecting the sanctity of marriage. Why is that so? The Pharisees had come to him, and they were complaining about something they didn't understand. He was addressing this controversy by reminding them of the marriage covenant and distinguishing it from a contract. He was giving them wise counsel. That's why he says, have you not read this? Do you not know what it says back in the beginning? This is why a man leaves his mother and father. The two become one flesh, and they spend their life together. When I do premarital counseling, we talk about leaving those families of origin, clinging, cleaving together, and then weaving a life. It's the principle of oneness. God's design is that two become one and form an unbreakable bond. And I remind you, because we base what we teach and preach in this church on Scripture, we believe that God's design for marriage is one man plus one woman for one lifetime together. That's his design, period. So what happens? Well, we get caught up in what I would call marriage myths. Can I, can I break down some of the marriage myths for you? This isn't really a, a, a teaching on marriage, but maybe this will help you. One of the marriage myths is this. You complete me. You complete me. And I don't know, maybe you didn't think that way when you were getting married, but a lot of people have ever since a particular movie. You know the, the name of the movie? Jerry Maguire. That's right. Tom Cruise looks at Renee Zellweger, his love, and he says, you complete me. What's wrong with that? You can't complete another person. You didn't start them. <laughs> You can't complete them. That's not your job. Say, that's not my job. <laughs> Marriage is not intended to complete another person. And if you're a Christ follower, I want you to understand something. This is good news. You ready? You're already complete in Christ. And if you think that other person is supposed to complete you, you will never be satisfied. You will never find contentment. You're complete in Christ. I know this because Scripture says, my God will supply all of my needs according to His riches and glory through my spouse, right? No. Through Christ Jesus, you crazy people. <laughs> Scripture says, I've given you everything pertaining to life and godliness. God has given you that ability to find your completeness in Him. Matter of fact, the reason this is so important is because we're sinners. We don't have the ability. I heard about this couple. They were getting married, and unbeknownst to the two of them, both of them were scared out of their minds. They had a problem that nobody knew about, and they didn't know what to do as they headed toward that first day of marriage. So that young groom, he went to his dad. He said, Dad, I'm, I'm, I'm scared out of my mind. I don't know what I'm going to do. Dad said, what's wrong? He said, I got a problem. He said, what's the problem? He said, I've got the smelliest feet you've ever smelt. It's bad. I don't know if this came from you or mom, but it's bad. He said, I'm afraid that that first morning we're going to wake up and my new wife's going to smell my feet 
And she's going to say, forget it. I can't do this. Dad said, I got you. He said, I got this thing figured out. He said, here's what I want you to do. Just put on your socks. Don't take off your socks when you get in that bed. Don't take your socks off ever around your new wife. In fact, when you get up in the morning, you take a shower, and then immediately you put on socks. All right, you got it. He said, I think I can do that. Unbeknownst to him, his wife was having a similar conversation with her mom. She said, Mom, I don't know if I can do this. Why? What's your problem? Well, I don't know if you've realized this, but I've got the worst breath that you've ever smelt. Mom said, really? Must have come from your father. But anyway, <laughs> she said, yeah, people used to make fun of me. I mean, I got bad breath. I don't know what I'm going to do. My husband's going to wake up on that first morning and say, hi, what, what have I done? Mom said, I got you. Here's what I want you to do. You got to set your alarm. You got to always wake up first. You wake up before your new husband. You run to that bathroom. You brush your teeth. And then you climb back in bed and you poke him on the shoulder and you say, good morning, honey. She said, I think I can do that. So they get married and everything's fine for about the first six months. Until one day, the man wakes up first. First time this has happened. And he looks down at the bottom of the bed and one of his socks is missing. He thought, oh, no. And because he was moving so much, he startled his young bride. She turned over and without thinking said, what's going on? And he said, oh, my goodness. I'm afraid you've swallowed my sock. (laughs) You see, here's the deal. Got to lighten this up a little bit. But we're smelly, stinky people. We're not able to complete one another. We're just not. That's a myth. There's another myth, though, and it is you compete with me. So when we realize we got problems, we just begin to fight, and it it begins to be a struggle. And all of our married life is just a struggle, seeing who can win. And, And we have arguments, and we get historical with one another. You say, Pastor, didn't you mean hysterical? No, I meant historical. We begin to say, well, remember when you did that, and remember when you done this, and remember when you did that, and it just becomes a competition, and we're like another young bride. She was preparing for her wedding day, and she was scared that she could even walk down the aisle, and her mom was standing there, and she said, honey, in just a minute, those doors are going to open, and your dad's going to be there by your side. He's going to be walking you down that aisle. You've got to go forward. She said, I don't think I can do it. She said, I just want you to think about three things. She said, you're going to open those doors and you're going to see that aisle, the center aisle of the church. You're just going to walk down that aisle. Just think about that aisle. And then down at the end of that aisle, you're going to see the front of the church. You and your future husband are going to be standing in front of the altar. You you just think about that altar that's at the front of the church. And when you get there, everything's going to stop. And before your dad gives you away, we're going to sing a hymn. And you just think about that hymn that we're going to sing that reminds you of God's. You think about that aisle, and you think about that altar, and you think about that hymn. You got it. She said, I got it. And that bride, the doors opened. Her dad was on her side. She began walking down. But she didn't realize it. But she was just saying out loud as she walked, aisle, altar. Him, I'll alter him. I'll alter him. And everybody started laughing like about three of you are because they began to hear what she was saying. And that's how a lot of people enter marriage. I'll alter him. I'll alter her. I'll change him. I'll change her. And it becomes that third myth. We think I can correct you. Now, I just want to remind you, if you're married, it's not your job to correct or change your spouse. You can't do that. How about say that with me? Say, I can't do that. You're right. 
You can't. You don't have the ability. Marriage instead is a picture of God's covenant love intended to bring him glory. It's God's covenant love intended to bring him glory. So can marriage ever end? Is it ever okay for it to stop? What did Jesus say? Well, he was answering a question that was referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let me read Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. It's the law of Moses. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something, what? Something, Something, anything, indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her, he can send her from his house. Now, what was Moses really doing here? I I want you to see he was actually trying to protect women because what was taking place is men were divorcing their wives for whatever reason they wanted to do. There were two schools of of Jewish thought, two different rabbis. One was a rabbi named Shammai, S-H-A-M-M-A-I. And he taught, and so the Jews that followed him believed that the only reason a marriage could end was because of sexual sin. But then there was a rabbi that people began to like. Probably smiled a lot. Probably made them feel good. And he taught that you could divorce your spouse for any reason, particularly the men. So, for example, they documented in the law, if you thought your wife's head looked like a gourd, you could say, I can't do this anymore. And you could just get divorced. They literally wrote in the law the equivalent of this. If your wife burnt the toast, you could say, how's a person supposed to eat this? And you could issue a divorce. You could literally divorce for any reason. And so Jesus wasn't commending divorce in any setting. He was conceding to it in a specific setting that is consistent both with what he says in Matthew 19 and with what you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. What is it he says? Well, he said, here's a reason where it's still going to be hard and it's not helpful but that divorce may be necessary. You know what it was? It's a word that he had just used when he said, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you if you lust in your heart. It was that word porneo. So Jesus is saying if there's sexual immorality and it's unrepentant and it just continues, then I concede. Divorce may be an option. Why? Not because it's part of God's divine plan. No, he was saying it needs to be rare. It needs to be as radical as the amputation of a limb on your body. Because that's really what happens in a divorce. It's an amputation. You know how I know that? Because for this reason, a man shall leave his mother, leave his father, and the two become one. And when you become one, how's the only way you unbecome one? You sever it. That's an amputation. And Jesus is saying sometimes the pain of unrepented adultery is so hurtful. It's hard for a marriage to survive. The Apostle Paul does add another thing that he says in 1 Corinthians 7. What was happening when people began to follow Jesus, sometimes people both had been pagans. A husband or a wife begins to follow Jesus, and the spouse begins to say, 
What is this cult that you're a part of? I don't want any of that. And so they would leave. What do we call that? Abandonment. And so Paul would say, we understand that if, if you've been abandoned by your spouse who's an unbeliever, you know, then a divorce may take place. In, in our society, because this has become more and more prominent, we do feel like it's necessary to say a third thing that fits into these two categories. And that would be abuse. And I want to be very clear. And This can be both of a man or of a woman. Unfortunately, in our society, it seems to be most often two women. If you're in a setting where you're undergoing physical or sexual abuse, I, I, I believe your spouse has abandoned the covenant love of God. And the first thing we would say to you before you make any long-term decision is get out and get to a safe place. And hear us as a church say, we want to facilitate that anytime we can. We, we don't want you staying in that setting of abuse. Divorce is a consequence. It's not a convenience. That's why Jesus would talk about the two becoming one. Remember, he was talking to religious leaders, and they were looking for loopholes, right? So the Jesus way is never about what's the easiest way out. What we're learning from this message in Jesus is that he's always raising the standard. So covenant love is a love that has a huge standard of sacrifice. That's why when it's described by Paul, the job of the husband, you know what it says in Ephesians chapter 5 for people like me who are married? It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ show his love for the church? He died. I mean, that's covenant love. You know, as, as kids, we would always try to find a way out. So I don't know where this started. I don't think my parents taught me this. But there was a way we kind of minimized dishonesty. Maybe you did this too. Like sometimes if you were talking to friends, you might stand like this. And they couldn't see you. But behind your back, you had your fingers crossed. And they'd say, are you telling the truth? Yes, sir. Yeah, I am. And somehow, somebody had informed us that if you crossed your fingers, you could say whatever you want. It didn't matter. And that's kind of where they had gotten in this understanding of marriage. But marriage is not a contract that you can get out of just because your expectations are not met. It's a three-way covenant with God designed to display His glory to a watching world. You understand the difference between a contract and a covenant? A contract says... You do your part, I'll do mine. You meet my expectations, then I'll belly up to the bar. You don't do your part, don't count on me. I'm out of here. That's a contract. Any of you got a contract with Verizon, T1, something like that? Got a contact with Frontier? Lord help you if you do. You ever tried to get out of those contracts? You can call these places because you need help. You don't like what you're paying. And you can literally stay on hold forever. And then it clicks and cancels. It makes a preacher want to say bad words. I mean, it is not, it is not good. But I figured something out. 
I figured out how to get them to answer the phone. All you've got to say, first time you can say something, all you got to say is, cancel, I need to cancel my subscription. And it's like, beep, beep, beep. An alarm goes off somewhere in about five seconds. Someone, hello, Mr. Purvis, yes. Uh, you want to talk about can? Let me see if I can help you. Let me see if you can help me. That's the way I talk to them. You know why? Because it's a contract. I'm not spending Thanksgiving with the people at Frontier. I don't have a love loss for them. It's a contract. Some of you relate to your relationships that way. Remember Hosea? The story of Hosea was that your faithfulness in covenant love is not dependent upon whether or not it's reciprocated. That's why when I do premarital counseling, everybody gets a book called Sacred Marriage. And the, the primary principle in that book is marriage is not designed as much to make you happy as it is to make you holy. And you know why? Because as hard as it is to understand, marriage is temporal. It's not the end all. It's not the goal. Our goal is eternity with God in heaven. So we have to change the way we're thinking. And by the way, some of us need to change the way we're talking about around the generation behind us. I heard this little girl, somebody's telling her the story of Snow White, and they got to that point where Snow White was kissed and magical things began to happen, and the person says, you know what happened next? And the little girl says, yeah, they lived happily ever after. And they said, no, they got married. <laughs> I, I'm not saying that marriage can't be happy. It certainly should be. But that's not the end goal. It's a temporary means to an eternal end. It's not about your personal satisfaction and pleasure. Because we've already learned that another person can't constantly bring you satisfaction and pleasure. Marriage is about glorifying God by putting on a picture of his covenant love with you. And in case you're thinking, well, I'm single or I'm something else and this doesn't apply to me, Jesus went on to say that this idea of covenant faithfulness is true in every area of our life. That's his whole talk about oaths where he says, don't swear, don't say this. He's saying since God is a covenant-keeping God, his expectation is that we become covenant-keeping people, that we say what we mean and we mean what we say. Again, there's some silly stuff I learned as a child. I know I'm getting old. Maybe you didn't do this, but sometimes somebody say, you telling the truth? And I would say, yeah. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Anybody else ever say that? I mean, who thought that up? That's awful. <laughs> and Jesus was saying, no, you don't need any excuse. You don't need to swear on your mama's grave. Who came up with that? It's terrible. You don't swear in Jesus' name. No, you live in such a way that your word, your commitment is meaningful. Every area of our life is to be influenced by this. That's why in our church, we have covenant membership. When I was growing up, you just joined the church. You walked down, shook the hand of the preacher and said, I'm here to join the church. And if it was a godly preacher, he at least asked you if you were saved. But a lot of times they didn't. That's why a seminary professor said, man, it's easier to join the church than it is the Kiwanis Club. You just walk down and say, just as I am, without one plea, I'm here to sign Form 103. I understand that lunch is free. I come. 
In our church, we have a membership process that you go through, a, a membership class, and we ask you to sign a covenant. And I would just tell you, we got thousands of members. It's obvious a lot of people don't see this as a covenant. They don't participate. They don't, they don't serve. They don't give. They don't make that difference. But it's not just church. It's every area of your life. It's, it's every relationship where, where you begin to deal with people, seeing them not as a business exchange, but as a biblical relationship based in covenant love. Where do we go from here? Well, I told you we we're going to say some hard things. The Bible has more to say. Malachi, the prophet, the Old Testament prophet, says God hates divorce. I mean, I'm just telling you, Scripture is clear on this issue. There's not room. But let me tell you what it doesn't say. It doesn't say God hates a divorced person. See, the religious leaders were doing something that we religious people can sometimes do. They were focusing on the problem of sin. And Jesus did what Jesus always does. He focused on the pursuit of holiness. And that's what I want you to hear today. Regardless of what you've been through. Regardless of what's in the rearview mirror. You know, there's a reason in our car you've got that tiny rearview mirror and then you've got that big old windshield because where we're going matters more than just where we've been, right? So where, how do we go forward? How do we... How do we lean in on Jesus, this better way? The way of Jesus is the, the better way. If you're here and you've been through the pain of divorce, let me just tell you, that doesn't mean God's done with you. This is not a church that preaches that. And if, if you've been to a church or a, a re, part of a religious group that treats you that way, that if you've been through that painful experience of divorce, that there's nothing you can do in his body and his family, then I'm so sorry and you've been told wrong. Because the teaching of Jesus regularly uses examples even like this to show us that's not the case. I wish I had time just to go through them. I don't, but let me just refer to them. John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at the well. She's needy. He sees her need. She wants more. And so Jesus says to her, go get your husband. She says, ah, that's going to be a problem. And Jesus says, I know. You've had five husbands. And this guy you're shacking up with, he's not your husband. So he then begins to tell her what we have sung in popular music. You've been looking for love in all the wrong places. You've been looking for love in too many faces. But he teaches her about covenant love. Then you flip over to John chapter 8. And these men, people that would be like deacons and preachers, they drag this half-naked woman or perhaps all-naked woman into the street. And, and they say, Jesus, this woman's been caught in adultery. She needs to be stoned. And after, after contact with Jesus, instead of having stones hurled in her direction, she, she was covered up in grace. Oh, Jesus told her, you need to get up and you need to stop doing what you've been doing. Stop this sinful lifestyle. But this is not the end. You say, Pastor, I've been divorced and now I'm remarried. What do I do? Well, I, I know this. <laughs> you, you're not going to fix a covenant that's been broken by breaking another covenant. So you may need to make amends if that's possible. And it's not always possible. That's a whole other message. But, but you may need to do something. 
But if you're in a covenant relationship now, you focus on that covenant relationship. Here's, here's what I want you to take away. If the worst sinner who's ever lived can be redeemed by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, then the worst marriage that's ever existed can be redeemed by that same power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to give up. I just told you part of the story. We display this this window because it does remind us of a sweet time in our ministry. But I can't look at it without it reminding me of a hard time in our marriage. You see, even though we grew up in in a Christian home, we entered marriage like everybody enters marriage. Two sinful people. And the truth is, early in our marriage, we began to realize that without God's grace, our failures would destroy us. When I look at this, I I think about a hard time in our marriage. (laughs) But I think about God's grace. I think about God's goodness. I think about God's provision in our life that has allowed us now to celebrate 30 years together. You see, what does a stained glass window do? If there's no light, stained glass can be just a dark, ugly window. But when light shines through, what is dark becomes beautiful. You know, in our lives, in your lives, there are some dark spots. But what Jesus constantly reminds us is thanks to his goodness and grace, our darkness can be overcome by his light. I'm so thankful that God allowed us to make a conscious decision to pursue covenant love in spite of our failures. And he could do the same for you, friend. So what it'll be? What will it be? Is your life a worthy display of God's covenant love? In your marriage? In your relationships with others? In just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And I want you to sit on this reality. Jesus was making it clear. His way is different. But His way is better. You got to learn to trust His way. Would you bow your head with me? Please listen carefully because as I pray, I'm going to give all of us an opportunity to respond. You know, we respond every week. Sometimes we do that with a chance to come forward. Sometimes we do that with singing. We're going to do both of those today. Every week we do that through giving. We're going to do that in a moment. We're going to sing in a moment about the great faithfulness of God. Are you resting in His faithfulness? So three ways you can respond to this marriage message. Number one, every one of us here, we've got relationships, our little corner of the world. And some of those relationships, I'll be honest, some of you are dealing with them like they're business relationships, not Bible relationships. When people disappoint you, you write them off, you shun them, you treat them like a porcupine. You need to stop it. That's not covenant love. 
in just a moment. That means whether you're a single adult or married adult, you might just want to come and kneel here or just come and stand here and pray and just say, God, I'm, I, don't, I, I, I want to be a reflection of, of your covenant love. I want to live a life worthy of display. Number two, you may be a married couple. I'm going to invite you to do what Kimberly and I are going to do. We're going to drive down a spiritual stake, make a marker today to say, you know what? Jesus, thank you for this reminder. We want our life to be reflected of covenant love. And so I'm going to invite couples and I'm going to invite men to take the lead because I believe scripture says you're the spiritual leader. If you're here with your spouse to grab your, their hand and just come and to make this a moment. Maybe your spouse couldn't be here because they're sick or they work or maybe they don't come and you would just come and, and just say, hey, I want to do my part in the area of covenant love. Maybe you're a single adult. You say, Pastor, what do I do on a day like this? Well, that whole chapter, 1 Corinthians Paul says some crazy things in there, and one of the things I could summarize is that he says, leverage your singleness for God's glory. So just determine in this season, God, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leverage what you've put me in for your covenant love. All right? So there's something for everybody. Now, there's somebody here. You've never begun a relationship with Jesus. Let me just remind you, God loves you in spite of who you are, in spite of what you've done. He loves you so much that Jesus died on the cross. He desperately desires that you would just look to him and experience his covenant love. You can tell him that right now. Maybe you'd pray a prayer like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I know I need you. I'm a sinner. I understand you died for my sin. I know you love me. And I love you. Today, I express my love by turning to you, Jesus, determined to live for your glory. For the rest of my life, I'm going to follow you. I tell him thank you. you just prayed that prayer with me or if you want to talk to someone about the covenant love of God through a relationship with Jesus time we begin to step forward I'm going to ask you to step out and come take the hand of one of our pastors who will be standing here I'll be standing here as well right after I pray with my bride would you stand together with me so Father in the name of Jesus as we sing about your great faithfulness to us hear our cry Lord give us a covenant love like we've never experienced for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.